This is Vanya. I just wanted to say thank you so much for all this work you do. I feel like on podcasts, I should be paying for this. It's like incredible the amount of time and energy and love that you put into all of these things that you do. But anyway, I am in my painting clothes, like squatted down, painting the baseboard in our vintage home, listening to all of your podcasts, like over, <laughs> like one by one. My last thing I listened to was you and Brett talking about his dad with Alzheimer's. And so I talked to my husband, who's also a Brett. I shared with him about it. And we both were crying over dinner tonight. It's like, we've got our parents in our 70s, 75 or so. And so we're going to reach out and just ask them, like, how do you want us to take care of you? Uh, if and when that time comes and then we need to plan like, babe, what do we want to do when we're that age? And we better let our kids know all that. Thank you. And you really are encouraging me. And I'm new to all of this. I'm new to the Marketing Impact Academy. I'm so excited to get a little bit more going with my businesses. Love you, girl. What's up, Buttercup? I'm so happy you're here. Welcome to The Shaleen Show. My name is Shaleen, which is, I guess, why it makes a whole bunch of sense that this is called The Shaleen Show. And I'm just really thankful, grateful that you're here. I think you're really going to like this episode. This is going to shed some light on friends of yours, people that you know, people that you love, who seem to never be satisfied. And maybe that's you. Today, we'll take a deeper look, a deeper dive to help all of us understand what makes us feel this way and what can we do about it. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, every minute that you're angry, you lose 60 seconds of happiness. For me, I've come to realize that every minute that I spend dissatisfied, I lose 60 seconds of happiness. And eventually I had to figure out for myself that that wasn't okay. Today, we're talking about a syndrome I like to call unfulfilled female syndrome. It's something I've identified in myself and I like to say that I'm in recovery. I can't say that I am 100% recovered because I don't know that we ever get to that place. And I don't know if I attract these types of females into my life or if it's something that's happening in society as a whole. Recently, I polled my Instagram followers to find out if, in fact, it was just me and my circle of friends or if this was actually very prevalent. Based on your responses, between 60 and 76% of my audience said they did fall into that category, that they often did feel as though they weren't doing enough, that whatever it was they were pursuing should have been better, could have been bigger. An overwhelming majority of you shared that you often have a sense that there's something missing, that you need to do more, that once you reach a goal or an accomplishment, instead of taking time to celebrate it, you feel as though you've fallen behind and need to get on to the next thing, the next bigger and better thing, that there's always people to compare yourself to who are doing more who are doing better. And because of that, even once you reach major milestones or accomplish your audacious goals, it still doesn't feel like it's enough. Even if you're exercising six and seven days a week, you look in the mirror dissatisfied with your progress, even though everyone else praises you not only for your efforts, but the results. 
For whatever reason, it always feels like we need to be doing more. When I was in middle school, my parents operated a business, a liquidation business, where my dad went into stores that were closing down, kind of like what's happening right now, where major department stores and chains and franchises are trying to figure out how to survive, filing for Chapter 11 and and filing for bankruptcy and liquidating their assets. When this happened, the assets went up for auction, if you will, through the bankruptcy courts. And my dad would go to court which probably is one of the reasons why I so desperately wanted to be an attorney. Oh my gosh, I'm just like having this realization right now. So they took their life savings and they bought a really big deal. I can't remember the name of the company that they liquidated, but what they do is they take possession of all the assets. They weren't actually taking ownership of the business, but rather its assets. So once they took possession of them, they would house them in a giant warehouse until they could figure out how to resell them. Apparently, this was over just a short period of time. And from what I remember, what my dad has described to me, it was a kind of shady, dark, almost mob-like mentality of the folks who were running in these circles. My dad was kind of the odd man out. The best way I can describe my dad, especially my impression of him as a child, was that he was just a mild-mannered, kind, level-headed, reasonable, very smart, but also very in control of his emotions kind of guy. You might remember the series that played in the 70s and maybe even into the 80s, Little House on the Prairie. My dad reminded me of Michael Landon, Pa, on Little House on the Prairie. That's the kind of guy he was, so he really didn't fit in with this group of unscrupulous characters. Needless to say, when he got this deal, apparently it was a really big deal. Though no arrests were ever made, it's assumed one of his competitors burnt the warehouse down to the ground. Now, I never knew it at the time because my folks were really good about the language that they used and they very carefully avoided saying things like, Money doesn't grow on trees. We're broke. We can't afford that. So I never really knew how we were doing financially. Except when this happened. And I remember my dad bringing me into his office. And he sat me down in his big brown leather office chair. So I knew this was important. In his hand, he was holding a little, probably like three inch by two inch blue bank book. It was my bank book. And he wanted to share with me a lesson. Now his intentions were pure. I don't fault him in the least. It sounds like something I would do with my own kids. So the story I'm about to tell you, for some reason, I'm feeling like very protective of my dad right now. But what he meant to do was to share with me a lesson in how to have your money make you money. He wanted to teach me about interest. And in doing so, He pulled out my bank book and said, now I know you've been saving your money and working really hard and I want to teach you today how you have the opportunity to have your money make you money. You know, your mother and I have lost our business. There was the fire and we're going to be okay. But what we'd like to do is borrow this money from you 
and we're going to pay you back. Now, I don't know if they really needed that money. I don't know. But they did borrow it, and they did pay me back. And it might have just been my dad seeing an opportunity to teach me about interest. But I beamed with importance and significance. I remember on that day feeling like my whole life and the role that I played in this family had changed. Even as I think back on it, it's like I can feel the alchemy. Something shifted in me that day. I felt so important. I felt so relevant. I felt so needed. And in it, I formed this belief that that's what made me significant. My ability to take care of people financially, my ability to have money. I knew it was a big deal that my parents were borrowing money from me. And even though it might not be true, in my head, I formed this belief that I was keeping the family afloat, that it was me who was saving the family. And from that day forward, everything about the way I viewed success and money and accomplishments changed. And I viewed the world through those lenses. I looked for ways to prove my belief. If I was praised or people complimented me for anything, I didn't hear those compliments. I didn't believe those compliments. But the ones I looked for and the ones I sought after, the ones that felt so important to me were the ones related to making money. And in particular, making money to take care of other people. By age 15, I was already figuring out how I could afford my own college. I never asked my parents for lunch money again after that happened, and I was in middle school. I never asked them for a dollar after that, not because I had guilt, but because I had pride that I could provide for others. I could provide for myself, and eventually, I started flipping cars and entering into business and finding myself more obsessed with working than I did anything else. That's why... Every sport that I started, I usually would quit because it wouldn't allow me to spend enough hours at work. I worked retail, network marketing. I knocked on doors. I sold newspapers over the phone. Anything that I could do, any part-time job that I could have in any small business that I could develop simultaneously, I did that. And I like to think that I did it from drive, but really, ultimately, eventually, after going to therapy, I learned that I was doing it because it was the only thing I thought that made me valuable. And when I looked for evidence of that, I could find it. And if I couldn't find it, I would create it. Whatever I needed to do to validate that belief, I did it, including and through the first pretty much 10 years of my marriage. When I met my husband, I was 21, he was 20. We were at Michigan State University. And At that point, I already had three jobs, was working as a paralegal and also a full-time student and also running my own business. I was a baller. And I thought that's what he was attracted to, was my ability to make money, to provide for not just myself, but for others. I remember on his 21st birthday, I rented a huge limousine and purchased all the alcohol for the party for him and all of his friends and my friends. And he just always paid for everything. And it wasn't as though that came easy, it meant a lot of sacrifice. It meant I never had time to rest. It meant that I could never just be a student. I had to always be thinking about 
the next move, my next job, my next promotion, my next business, my next thing, because I had to make more money. Because if I wasn't making more money, well, then I would be less valuable. And I, I just carried this theme in my mind forward into years of our marriage life and never feeling satisfied and never being told that that's why I was valuable. But the irony is that the more you make, the more you realize you have to make after that, because you're only as good as your last hit. You know, if you take your friends and family members on a fancy vacation, well, the next vacation has to outdo that. And if you're buying a nice car this year, well, then the car you buy next year has to be better than that. And if the check you've made this month is really impressive, well, then the check after that has to be even bigger, which leaves you feeling forever unfulfilled. There was never any time to celebrate any wins or to congratulate myself on a job well done. There was no time I had to do more and more and more. And it became my drug. It became my addiction. It drove a wall between myself and my husband. I was so disconnected as anyone is when they're deep in their addiction. When you're deep in your addiction, you are so distracted that it's impossible to connect on an emotional level with other people. You can't because you're busy. Your mind is constantly focused on how can I get that next fix. And for me, that next fix was that next big deal, my next accomplishment, my next money-making opportunity. Even once we had kids, I could coordinate my day so that I could be there with my kids during the day. And, you know, we raised them at home together. We worked in our business together. But all that meant was I had less time to make money during the day, so I sacrificed my sleep. Just never sleeping, I would stay up through the night because I knew I had to make more money in my mind next month than I did this month. But eventually, it nearly broke us. And I'll save that story for another podcast. But I'll tell you this. I don't know that we would still be married today if we hadn't gone through that deep, dark place where Brett's addiction, which eventually ended up being gambling, and my addiction, which was work, forced us both into really taking our therapy to the next level. Now, I'd been seeing a therapist. That was quite the norm in my family. And I thank my parents for normalizing that. And I had gone to therapists in the past. But it wasn't until this happened that I knew I needed to figure out why it was I never felt fulfilled. I can proudly and confidently tell you today that I am a changed woman. I don't think that you're ever safe. Like, I know that I have to be aware. I know that there need to be checks and balances. And I know I have to give people permission to keep me accountable, to be my sponsors, if you will. It's a journey. But by reprocessing that early childhood memory and then all of the subsequent evidence I stacked on top of that early childhood memory, I've been able to release that feeling. I no longer hold that belief to be true. And it's, ah, uh, what a freaking relief. It feels like the weight of the world has been lifted from my shoulders. Free. Free. That's what I feel like today. I don't. It doesn't matter to me how much money I make. I, I need to make enough money to keep a roof over our head, but it no longer has a hold on me. And one of the ways I know that to be true is because 
I don't need to be the one. Like in the past, I didn't allow Brett to be the breadwinner or to be the one responsible for saving the family financially. Like I wanted that role to be mine so that I had a role in this family. But today, I just feel so protected and taken care of because he does take care of our financial situation and because he's reassured me so many times and because I have different beliefs now, but he's reassured me over and over again that that is, that's not why he loves me and it's not why I'm important. And also my faith, like I know I am valuable, not because of what I can earn, but simply because I'm a child of God and he's like the coolest person in the world. And he's already very impressed just by the fact that I am me. Success no longer has a hold on me. Now, my goal is peace. I'd have to guess that it's coming up on 10 years now that I've been friends with my friend Natalie Jill, who's been on the show many, many times. And I met her shortly after what I like to call my awakening. And I immediately recognized my past self in her. Of course, being the pushy know-it-all friend that I am, I couldn't help but let her know that there was another way. Now, since that time, Natalie too has been on her own journey. I think that she too would say she once suffered from unfulfilled female syndrome. For years, years in my life, I was on this never-ending chase. It was like nothing was good enough. I would achieve a goal and then it wasn't good enough to me. I had to set the next goal. And then I would achieve that next goal. And then I would hear somebody else had achieved a bigger goal or something that I perceived to be more powerful and I would chase that. And it felt like this never-ending chase. And it was constant and competition would fuel it friends that I attracted with fuel it. It was this constant chase of this is not enough. This is not enough. When I think to what was it that drove me to keep going, to do more, to create more, to do the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. Really what I know now is that it was about acknowledgement, about at, look at what Natalie created. Look at these people that love Natalie. Look at all these people that Natalie has helped. Look at who Natalie connected so-and-so with. It was about this need for acknowledgement and being liked or really being loved. You know, I think back to being a little girl, my dad never told me he loved me. It was one of those things I knew he did, but he never verbalized it ever. And my dad worked a lot. He was always working. And the only way to get my dad's attention was to say, look at me, look what I've done. You know, my dad was always about me making money. Like he wanted me to make money. He was proud of me if I was making money. So my first job was at 15 and a half. And when I was 19, I got a job at Hooters. (laughs) Now, my mom was not happy about that. And my dad even at first was like, you got a job where? And... As soon as he saw how much money I was making there, all of a sudden it turned to him being proud. When I look at my chase, it was really about approval and being liked and being recognized. That was the drive. But now that I know that I am enough, that like just by existing and being here, 
I am of value and I love myself, that drive has changed. So that's what's changed is that recognition of a lot of that. I'm 48 years old as we record this and just have achieved so much. But looking back, it's interesting that I never actually took time to acknowledge myself or or say, wow, look, you did this. I never did that. I'm going to honestly say for the first time in my life, I don't feel that way. I do not feel like I'm still chasing. I've learned. (laughs) It is an ongoing process to stay in check, but I've done a lot of work to get to that point. It just felt like I was never enough. In fact, I remember my first book had been published. It was a bestseller. It had hit USA Today as a bestseller. I had over 500 reviews on Amazon. I was top of several categories on Amazon. I had countless emails, people writing in that I had changed their lives, that my book had made a huge impact for them. And I felt like a failure because I had set this goal that I was gonna be a New York Times bestseller. And when I didn't hit that goal, I was devastated. All I could think about was failure. And I remember going to speak on stage And feeling like a failure before I even went out, thinking I'm a fraud. Here I'm going to go speak, and I couldn't even make New York Times bestseller. The only way that we evolve, the only way that we grow, is by taking a deep and sometimes very painful look at our past and putting the pieces of the puzzle together, understanding, without judgment, how our early beliefs were formed. I had a dad that... I know he loved me, but I was never enough. I was never enough. Never enough for him. It was always, you know, what are you going to do? And to get my dad's attention, it would be about what I was earning or what I was creating or what I was doing. And that's how I would get my dad's attention. It really boiled down to me wanting love from my dad and feeling that I had to prove something to him. When my dad died when I was just 22 years old, I think I was left with still chasing and looking for approval. It's one thing to recognize these traits in ourselves and to struggle with the idea that it might be a positive trait, that our drive creates success and admiration. Work ethic is celebrated, but when drive turns into an obsession, when you never feel fulfilled, when your quest results in exhaustion, and relationships are splintered. How do you change that? The start of it was my husband being unhappy. You know, my husband used to say to me, when is anything enough? When is anything enough? And I would get mad at him. I would think, what's wrong with you? Like, I'm providing, I'm successful. I, we have these nice things. And he would say, I don't care. I just want you. When is this going to be enough? And he finally had had enough. And he's my second husband. We are still together now. But a few years ago, he was ready to walk out the door. And that was the wake-up call, but it wasn't even enough. Then also had to happen was my business had to start suffering. I think my need to constantly do more, create more, be more, drove people crazy. (laughs) People that work for me. And it was such a chase that I had that I ended up spending ridiculous amounts of money chasing my dream I say it was like the ego spending now. 
hiring people that I thought could make me stronger, better, whatever, and never really paying attention to, you know, numbers and how my business was actually doing. And so that second thing that had to go wrong was my business being near failure because of that, because of how I was spending to create versus like actually just appreciating and looking at what I've got and managing that well. And then the third thing that that really had to kick in was I had to get injured. And it happened not once, but a few times. Started with my back, injuring my back and needing surgery. And then it escalated as of the most recent thing was tearing my bicep, a distal bicep tear. And what was interesting about that is I had already made this big shift and realized so much and was really headed in the right direction. And I had just started to have a little glimpse of wanting to chase again. And then I tore my bicep. I now look at those things as reminders. If you don't get proactive and look for how you can change this, then I believe life happens to you in a way that will make you realize it. I know a number of entrepreneurs and friends that will tell you the same thing, that they knew it on some deep level that they were in this constant chase of it's not enough, but they didn't want to interrupt it. And it took an injury or an illness or their spouse leaving them. It took something massive to happen. My advice is if you even feel it coming up, pay attention to it. For me, it's been a big journey, a several year journey, starting with personal development, therapy, doing some EMDR, going on some spiritual retreats where I could just really shut down and go internal and and look at this. And then hiring some solid coaches. I'm a huge fan of having coaches that can help pull a lot of this out of you. And then the final piece that really helped me was I did some hypnosis. And I can't speak enough about the powers of hypnosis. When you can get to the root of what's happening, that definitely changed the relationship I've had with my dad, just doing hypnosis. Going back to childhood and being able to know that I'm loved just for being. And that came from hypnosis, a lot of that. You know, I often say that I am a workaholic in recovery, and I'd like to say that I'm completely recovered. I think if I did say that, I would be putting myself at risk of falling back into the grips of my addiction. I know that my addiction is work and accomplishment. I know that I have these tendencies. I believe recovery is a journey on which we must always be vigilant. I have moments where I have an idea or a thought, and I'm like, wow. But I quickly now go to why that may not be needed or the gratitude in what I already have or why this is not a good idea to add that now. And what's so funny is I think my whole life I thought I had to be chasing and hustling to be successful. And I now have a knowing that that's not true. And I will tell you that my business is doing better now from a profit standpoint than it ever has. And I'm hustling and chasing so much less. It's not even part of my, my life anymore. I often talk about how we are resistant to go to therapy. We're resistant to dig deep when we believe we're managing. And this is especially true for those of you who are highly productive, who are driven. You might wonder if, in fact, you're going to lose your edge, if, in fact, you might make things worse. Will it be worth the effort? There is something amazing on the other side of it. 
I wouldn't change anything I've been through to learn the lessons that I've learned. But I no longer believe that it's necessary to hustle and chase to be successful. Angie Lee is the founder of My Soul CBD, also a sponsor of the show. Now, you might be surprised to know that Angie Lee is just 30 years old. She's practically a baby. And as a matter of fact, she calls herself a baby grandma. The irony? She's accomplished more in her 30 years than most people do in their lifetime. She's someone I consider a dear friend. I adore her. She's a petite blonde firecracker. She's hyperactive, self-deprecating, has big eyes. She could definitely do stand-up comedy. She snowboards and she teaches marketing. And for all those reasons, my greatest fear is that someone's going to say, is that your daughter? Which is why I always introduce her as my little sister. I see myself in Angie and the protective older sister in me worries about her ability to know that she's enough. I can't remember the last time in my business that I took a year to just be versus doing and achieving something specific. My next goal is a successful book launch in the fall and I'm already feeling the anxiety versus really focusing on the enjoyments of the process. So for most people, just publishing a book is an incredible feat. And because I am so personally familiar with that way of thinking, I'll just bet that New York Times bestseller is what she means when she says successful book launch. For me, I feel like a lot of my childhood was about winning. And if I got a second place trophy, my dad wasn't happy. That wasn't enough. So I feel like now as an adult, what's happened is that has become how I show up in entrepreneurship, right? Is I have to win. I have to be the best. I have to keep growing. I have to keep excelling. And I feel like a lot of that is from him giving me love and recognition when I was the best and I got first place. I wanted to know from Angie what it felt like from her perspective when she does hit one of these incredibly lofty goals. Does she celebrate it? Does she feel fulfilled? Last year, I was fortunate enough to be asked to speak at her live event called Pays to be Brave. This event was off the freaking chain. She was like a rock star. And there were thousands of women who had come from all over the United States to learn how to basically monetize, how to be brave, how to overcome that fear that so many people have that keeps them stuck at a job that they don't like. I had to imagine that after this event, knowing what her goals were and knowing that she had accomplished them, I wondered what she felt. After my live event, I felt like I immediately needed to start planning the next one. You have to wonder if her dissatisfaction or that feeling of not being fulfilled, being unfulfilled, how much of that stems from this belief that it wasn't big enough or it wouldn't be big enough in the eyes of her father. I remember even the first Pays to be Brave where I filled the room with 500 women, which is a huge accomplishment. I was super proud of myself and he didn't show up. He was busy. He was traveling. But I remember 
calling him after and telling him how excited I was, how amazing it was. I will always remember that moment of my first Pays to Be Brave event. And he kind of brushed it off. And he was like, oh, that's cute. That's cool. And I specifically remember him saying, oh, 500 women? Why didn't you have 800 women? And I was like, do you know how hard it is to get 500 people into a room? That took so much work. So maybe that is the part of me, the eight-year-old girl in me who feels like a thousand people isn't enough. So I have to have 3,000 and 3,000 people isn't going to be enough then. I need to have 10,000, but when does it end, right? Because everything's relative. So when will like, like one day I'm going to fill a room with 10,000 people and will I step off stage and be proud of myself or will I think that still is not enough? A thousand people isn't enough. You need 3,000 and then you need 10,000 and then you need 20,000. I didn't feel like I had time to celebrate and to be proud of myself. Now that I'm verbalizing this to you, I realize is absolutely crazy because the me three years ago would be so proud of myself. But that's the funny thing about our perceptions, our negative or our limiting beliefs. Even when common sense tells us this doesn't make sense, even when we know better, even when we know our beliefs are irrational until we reprocess those beliefs, they still very much control the way we operate, even when we know better. That's something I've really had to work on is making myself proud and doing it for me versus for my parents or my dad specifically. The eight-year-old in me got love and recognition and significance from doing, not from being. I got it from accomplishing a goal and being the best and winning and being first place in sports, not from my creativity and my passion and my effort. All of our beliefs, whether negative or positive, have an origin. Those beliefs are formed early and then we spend the rest of our lives looking for evidence to support those beliefs. And we don't have to look very far. Social media is an incredibly powerful tool, but it can also illuminate our insecurities and make us think that we need somebody else's career or success because we are scrolling and seeing everybody else's highlight reel. To be honest, I think a lot of it comes from the pressure to keep up with what everybody else is doing and what everybody else is achieving. If Susan wrote seven books, well, I need to write seven books. And that pressure can be really exhausting and it drains our creativity and our authenticity. And that comparison trap can make us feel like we are never doing enough. I feel like I still need to make my dad happy and proud. And the only way I'll be able to do that is by achieving things. And number two is comparison, comparing myself to other people in my space and feeling like I always have to keep up. When we make a decision to be a better human, which I think everyone who listens to this show has made that decision. That's one of the reasons why you love personal development. It means you've got to look at your origin stories. You have to figure out when was the first time I felt this way? And that often means looking at our childhood. And sometimes it means having to go back and make sense of memories, reprocess. I mean, who could fault a parent for encouraging their child to be their best? Seems like a positive. And I think myself about how that message may have had a negative impact on my kids who both are in their 20s now and 
I tend to think these issues don't always surface until children grow up to be young adults and then start to ask themselves, okay, why do I feel this way? Why do I feel unfulfilled? Or worse yet, why do I feel paralyzed by perfection? And we're just doing our best as parents. I know my parents were just doing their best. If you're a parent, I know you're doing your best, but we're still going to make mistakes. And even if we don't make mistakes, there's no way we can know for certain how our children are going to interpret the message. I certainly know that some of the beliefs I formed were of no fault of my parents. It's just the way I perceived the message. So what can we do? We can only do our best and we can have fun. We can enjoy the process of unraveling those stories, dismantling limiting beliefs, evolving, growing, And ultimately, it helps to have a good sense of humor about all these things. That is it, my friends. This is the real deal. Hashtag dad issues. (laughs) All right, girls. I love you both. Natalie, Angie, thank you for opening up your hearts to us. Thank you for sharing your realness. And gosh, you guys, it wasn't until I finished this episode that I realized what I'm sure some of you are realizing right now, too. Is this a daddy issue thing? Hmm. I don't know. I did my research before I started this episode, and I, I haven't found any of that. So I'd like to hear from you. If you suffer from unfulfilled female syndrome, do some of your early memories relate back to your dad? Are we just a bunch of little girls in adult suits trying to get our dad's attention? I don't know. It's worth exploring. Speaking of which, don't forget, therapy is cool, and cool people go to therapy. It's the thing to do. Listen, I love you. I mean it. And I'll talk to you soon.